We'll be silent for just a moment, then I'm going to take us through the guided meditation for lesson two. Lesson two is called How to Magnetize Money, and the visualization for it is marvelously direct. Visualize a cascade of gold coins pouring down like a waterfall. Just the beautiful shining quality of gold, which is actually a beautiful metal. We all wear it. It has the quality of light. It's golden in color like the sun. It's reflective. It also has inherent magnetism. Gold is valued not just by common agreement, but because inherently it has, it gives energy. It's a pure metal and it gives energy. He says, see this cascade of gold flowing, um, landing on the ground, and then flowing outward like a shining stream. So it descends from heaven, sort of fills our lap, and then flows out from us like a shining stream. So we are now connected to this infinite source of gold. It's coming down into us. We hold it in our hands and then we just pass it out and it begins to flow out to the world. And Swamiji says, change the image a little bit so that it's not so much actual coins, it's not really money, so much as the shining light, golden light that has condensed down into this form. So visualize now what's flowing into us as you see golden light coming down first from the level of the causal then into the energy world finally into the material world so that the power of the golden light manifests as gold it's a very subtle thought gold not gold in the sense of greed but gold in the sense of beauty and abundance and upliftment and see how the those the solidity of those gold coins is actually an illusion that there's really just this fluidity of light and energy. It's, it's the condensed form of this light and energy. He says, feel with your hands, play with that light, either mentally or actually physically with closed eyes. Just feel that your hands are in that golden light just as if you were picking up those coins and they spill through your fingers. It's very comfortable, natural, to have that condensed form of gold and light just running through your hands. Hold up your hands like a cup to receive and see that beam of gold and light just falling into your hands, moving beautifully through your hands, in a flow out to the world. See yourself receiving and giving. Our first lesson was all about giving. How can I give? How can I serve? I serve all as manifestations of myself. Now we want to receive this golden light in the form of Abundance, financial abundance. We want that just to flow through us as easily and naturally as our own loving energy flows through us. 
feel that this light is not something that is a unique and exceptional gift, but in fact is a manifestation of our own inner light. That the inner light within us expands out and manifests in many different forms. And one of the forms it manifests in is gold and light coalesced as pure gold, which represents our capacity to move through this world with material comfort, ease, not luxury necessarily, but at least with ease, without stress. Because this golden light is our own nature. It's descending from above, but it's descending through us. And we are a part of that light. Feel also that this divine flow of energy is really not about myself and my ego. That whenever I think about my own capacities, then limitation sets in. But if I see myself as an instrument of the divine, here to serve as God's instrument, that's why we give, because we're here to be God's instrument. We are all manifestations of this one. The light descends, the light passes through. We participate. We respond creatively, but we are not the source. So add these elements together. Last week we were building on the thought of serving all as a manifestation of myself. Now let us define that self as immersed in this golden light. This golden light can take any form. And now we want it to take the form of material wealth represented by this flow of gold through us cascading through our hands. Now please affirm with me, Thy wealth flows into me and through me. Its strength and power of accomplishment are unlimited for Thou art infinite. Thy power within me is infinite. Thy wealth flows into me and through me. Its strength and power of accomplishment are unlimited for thou art infinite. Thy power within me is infinite. Thy wealth flows through me. Thy wealth flows into me and through me. Its strength and power of accomplishment are unlimited, for thou art infinite. Thy power within me is infinite. Now just listen silently while I read it softly. 
Thy wealth flows into me and through me. Its strength and power of accomplishment are unlimited, for thou art infinite. Thy power within me is infinite. Om peace. I am going to go on to lesson two, but not before I go back and pick up something in lesson one that I forgot. Sorry, I hope you're not impatient. I must say I'm reveling in not having a schedule. We will get on to lesson two, I promise you, even tonight. I also feel that I never really gave enough energy to the action items in the back, although I gave you different homework. There's just a couple here that seem worth considering, and I want to. Um, Before we talk about anything new, does anyone have any thoughts or questions or comments from last week? You haven't proven yourselves to be a particularly talkative crowd, but I accept that. Yes, Lee hasn't. Lee, you need to take the microphone and point out to him what part of that is actually the microphone, please. Okay. Um, Well, the part of the homework that says seek to serve um, everyone that you meet. Right. Um, Wow. Uh, (laughs) That was pretty hard. Um, mm-hmm. When I even remembered to do that, I uh, <laughs> recalled how often I failed to uh-huh. what I would perceive to be true service, and uh-huh. definitely humbled and priest. Uh-huh. That priest was from is from Memphis, Tennessee. Who's a, t- a teacher at Ananda has been for years. When we were making up our program, right? She lived in our colony for a while, and you know, you just you make up all these different classes. And she said, basically, she says it's all alligators, crocodiles, and big lizards, no matter what name you call it. Meaning you're just taking the same teaching and you're just repackaging it and it's all, you know, surrender to God, love God, love other people. And you call it this, you call it that, so that people will come in through different doors because they're interested. But when they all get inside, we're just meeting the same creature. We've just called it a different name. So here I am, you know, for the last three weeks, we've talked about karma, we've talked about accepting life as it is, and so on. But the fascinating element about all of this is this is about manifesting money. And so we're, and it's like we've never really talked about manifesting money. We've talked about realizing God. You know, I didn't want to say ad nauseum, but that's not really fair. But we talk about it a lot. But now all of a sudden we're talking about manifesting money, which some people think of as separate, some people think of as the same, but it doesn't matter. It's a whole different thing. So these exact same principles that we've been working on for so long are suddenly being applied to the financial realm. Um, I, when I was talking in the very first class, I didn't actually say something that was important was many years ago, like 19, let's see, David was already at Ananda, 77, 78, sometime around those years, at Ananda Village where we were, I mean, we were poor, really poor. Uh, We were living on land that we were buying, so we were safe in that sense. We weren't going to become homeless, so we weren't as poor as you can be without that security, but otherwise we were real poor. And uh, Shivani decided that we would try to get more money. And she's a real go-getter. Some of you know her. She lives in Assisi now. Just, you know, she just charged out there. To, so she started you know, doing all these things to get the whole community going to make more money. And she started just getting everybody's prosperity techniques together. And I was with Swamiji, and I said, Swami, I, you know, Master's teachings are complete. He didn't leave out any aspect of life. This is a whole new way of looking. I don't mean to be prejudiced against other things, but it is. I said, we certainly have our own prosperity teaching, don't we? 
And he, well, he said, of course. And then that was when I asked him, I said, what is the secret of prosperity? He answered, creativity. He said, meaning that you never give up. No matter what happens, you find another way to go. And, and in truth, really, that is the secret of prosperity. You just never give up. And you, and you are creative about your never giving up. You just, if one thing doesn't work, you just keep trying and keep trying and keep trying until it does work. And now, then, all these years later, Swami's put it into this lesson. And, and I, I, to a certain extent, I feel, even though I said that to you last week, I, I don't think I've made it clear enough and I don't really see any point in going on to the next lesson until we really know the first lesson. Because if we miss any critical points and don't really fully, deeply take those points into our consciousness, then we, will, we won't get the magnetism that we need. And then later on, it'll just be one more thing that didn't work for us. So I've tried to pull out of that first lesson. Even though these are teachings that some of you have been studying for many years, I've tried to pull them out in this new context. And so we've spent a lot of time on the law of karma. And when we get now into lesson two, which we will someday soon, maybe even tonight, um, lesson two is really simple. Lesson two is amazing. Lesson two says, you have all the energy in the world, just get over your blocks and manifest it. Really, that's the summary of lesson two. The only problem is that your energy is blocked, so just get over it. I kept trying to find something else in lesson two, but that's basically what it says. Just get over it. You know, he doesn't... uh, Swami's not big on process. (laughs) You know, it's just like, get over it. Okay, so I will try to make more of it than that because I don't want to go on to lesson three with just that. But backing up a little bit, you know, the capacity to get over it, which he does actually say more than that. I'm just joking a little bit at at his expense in the lessons because he says a lot more than that. But you have to start with what I was emphasizing, you have to accept karmic law and not rebel against it. Because one of the most enormous blocks we have is that we are rebelling against the circumstances that we're in. And so we're mostly committed to changing them, but a great deal of us, because we're in a state of rebellion, is waiting to be rescued. Waiting to be rescued is a marvelous state of mind that we all get into. Swami Kriyananda played a little game with my consciousness well, he's played lots of games with my consciousness, very positive games. I, he's not a manipulator. But just, he did, just said something small once that had amazing repercussions. Um, on three separate occasions, David and I were going to be transferred from this colony to another colony. Uh, once we were going to go to the village, that lasted about 24 hours, and twice we were going to go to the East Coast. One, he actually had talked about sending us. The second one, I misunderstood and thought he was sending us. He couldn't understand why we were volunteering to leave Palo Alto. (laughs) It was total chaos. So we were actually going to be transferred twice, and then a third time we got to play out this ridiculous misunderstanding. But after the third cycle, Swamiji just basically looked at us, and more or less said, you know, just decide now where you want your ashes to be scattered, because I don't think you're going anywhere. I think this is your place, for for a lot of reasons. And whether it is or not is not the point of this. But wow when I actually stopped and think, thought, I'm never going to have another assignment. You know, I'm, I'm a monastic in a monastic order, even though it might not show to all of you, and I live according to what collectively Ananda feels they need from me. I always thought I would found more than just this one community, but as the years pass, it looks like that's not going to happen. Isn't it so? This, this one is just going to keep on uh, being our home. But when I thought I would never 
leave, that I would always live here, I was astonished how many parts of my consciousness were waiting to be rescued. People I didn't like, um, unsatisfactory conditions, a corner of the garden where nothing would ever grow, a closet that I just never wanted to clean out. Somewhere in my consciousness the whole time was, I'm never going to have to deal with those because sooner or later I'm going to be rescued. And it was just an extraordinary shift to just, even whether it's true or not, and David and I actually disagree about whether Swami was as emphatic as I think he was, <laughs> but whether or not, just the fact of really deciding that there's no tomorrow and there's no uh, cavalry coming. It's in front of me, and deal with it, honey. Don't just think that something else is going to happen. Now, lesson two is about the fact that you have all the energy in the world, it's just blocked. And he says, introspect and see what those blocks are. Okay, well, lesson one is about the method, about how we get over those blocks. And this is where I was saying the first homework assignment Behave in all circumstances as if the karma were perfect for you and everyone. Stop rebelling against it. But then the second half of that, which again, I slightly feel I haven't emphasized enough, we we said it a little bit, which is why are we here? You know, what is the karmic purpose? Everybody wants to know, what is my purpose? Why was I born? And we imagine that we'll get a really interesting answer. We all really want an interesting answer. We want to feel that we were born for something notable. I'm always really impressed by the fact that Lahiri Mahashaya, who's the guru as we face him to the left of Jesus, who was a fully self-realized master, lived in Varanasi in the middle of the 1800s, and he was a government accountant. I mean, I really can hardly think of, from my point of view, of a less interesting job. Maybe some of you think it would be really terrific to work as a government accountant in the 1800s in the city of Varanasi. He was, for 25 years, he was a government accountant and just went to work. He didn't have a counselor to whom he could say, but I need more creative work, you know. He just did it creatively. He did it with real spirit. And he, in Autobiography of a Yogi, they describe him as being like a kitten in the mouth of Divine Mother, just picked up put wherever she wants him, and then just resting there until she comes and gets him again. I mean, it's such an extraordinary image just even to imagine oneself as just settled where God puts us. And then looking around. And see, what we tend to look around is we tend to think around, what can I do to make myself happy? What can I get? You know, how can I ease my suffering? How can I make things better for myself in these ways? But what Swami says in lesson one is we should just look around and say, well, how can I give? And he's telling us that as the way to make money. See, that's the most interesting point. It comes out, normally we would say that, and that we would think that that was, of course, that's good advice, and now I have to go get my job. But he's saying, look around and ask what you can give. And one of the action items here is, at the beginning of every day, ask yourself, How can I help a specific person or situation? Then act on your inspiration. Throughout the day, ask yourself continually, how can I contribute uplifting and positive energy to this situation? Observe how acts of service expand your consciousness and sense of identification with others. 
Note how people and situations respond to the energy you project. Isn't that very interesting? I heard from Haridas, who's visiting here from India, where this course originated. Of course, Swami wrote it for India. And he said that there's a woman in their congregation who read this course. Her income has increased six times. And she now is a, a, has a, a global position managing 6,000 people. And she, she said, and it's 100% because she read this course, and as soon as she read it, it completely reoriented her relationship to the work that she was doing. Whereas before, it was all about, what am I going to get from it? She just suddenly turned it into, how can I give? Now, you activate so many elements when you turn it like that, not the least of which is, life becomes a lot more fun. Just, it's just a lot more fun to be thinking, how can I give? Because first of all, it expands your consciousness, all the things we've talked about that I don't need to emphasize here. But it's that element was one of the things that I felt, you know, walking away from this um, lesson, that we have, to be, we have to have that in our, we're building, you know, we're building a house here. And, and one of the foundation stones is, oh, isn't this interesting? In every situation, ask, how can I give? And, and in a business setting, this is not necessarily how people fi- think. You know, I'll give, but of course I also want to know what I'm getting. And of course you've got to be practical and you have to think about this. And he gives that whole story about that shopkeeper, which is pretty obvious. He gives us a couple of examples from retail work. But it expands a little bit. You know, where is my consciousness? Am I expanding beyond myself? Or am I saying, oh, I'll do that after I meet my life partner and when I get a creative job and when my boss isn't such a you know, unpleasant person, and, you know, just, we have all these reasons why we're going to wait. But then in lesson two, which we will get to, and we are getting to, he just talks about how you're, you're, we're stuck in karmic patterns, and the only way to shift those patterns is to put out a different kind of energy. So people so often think, I'm stuck in this pattern, I have to get out of this pattern before I can put out a different kind of energy. But you have to put out the different kind of energy, or else you're always going to be stuck in the pattern. Does that make sense? Okay. Now, um, anything else that anybody wants to say? Yes, Pam? What's the answer? Oh, stay tuned. <laughs> Which part of the question? What's the question? Not really. I don't think it's a chicken and egg conundrum because right in any moment, your consciousness can be either inwardly directed toward self-concern or it can be outwardly directed toward concern for others. And, and that is, in fact, uh, or the way someone put it, is you can either think about God or not. And that's really every other choice is an illusion and a superficial question compared to that. There's a very touching story in a book, uh, The Hiding Place by Corrie Ten Boom. Corrie Ten Boom is a devout Christian who, uh, her family, uh, her, her, they were in Holland in the world, World War II and they sheltered Jews and ended up in the concentration camps. If you've never read the book, it's a deeply inspiring book. And uh, her mother, before they all were arrested, her mother had a stroke and became paralyzed and had aphasia. The last word she spoke was Corey, and that was the only word she had left. So Corey, whenever she wanted to say anything, she would just say Corey, and she would just sing it over and over, and they'd all finally figure out what she meant by that word. But they sat her next to the window. You know, the family just took care of her because she was a they were devoted to her. They sat her next to the window and she would 
look out, out the window and basically pray for everyone she saw. And then somehow or another, probably mostly by intuition, when she saw someone who particularly needed something, then she would get Corey's attention and somehow would, they'd both look out the window and Corey would figure out that mother wanted to send a note or a flower or a, a cupcake or something to one of those people. She was completely paralyzed and couldn't speak. But it's just like, well, that doesn't mean I'm giving. Because it's just the direction, which direction does our consciousness go? And of course, as soon as we're self-expansive, we're happy anyway. And everything that we hope to accomplish by all the things we were trying to get become ours because it's really about consciousness. So it's not merely that our magnetism becomes abundance-oriented. is that we already have abundance and our whole relationship to what we have or don't have begins to shift because we've changed from the inside what we were hoping to have changed from the outside. You see what I mean? And if we can't do that, well, (laughs) we should um, work on it. And I don't think the answer is just get over it. But the point is, we should not mess around with smaller solutions. And that's really what Swamiji is trying to say by his sort of cutting through all the processes. Yeah, you have blocks. Introspect, find out what they are, then get over them. And the way he suggests getting over them is stop thinking of yourself as an ego and think of yourself in relationship to the infinite. Because no matter how many other layers you go through, sooner or later that's the way you get over it. Because everything else is a temporary fix. You know, you can feel good because you are competent. You can feel good because your parents built up your self-esteem. You can feel good because it's self-evidently that you're the best violinist in the orchestra. You know, you can feel good because look at all the money I've manifested. I have all these things in the bank. But sooner or later, everything turns to ashes and the only thing that's left is our actual inner sense of what we identify with. And every time we die, meaning every incarnation that we die, we run the same story again. This is the little bird. Little bird's told to be generous, but he says, I'm going to keep it for myself. And even though repeatedly he lost everything he had, he clung desperately to this thought. And I mean, he lost it because of the karmic law, but he lost it every time he died. I was just listening to a tape this morning, Swami was saying, this is a true story. A man was dying and he had a valuable golden ring on, a diamond ring, this was in India. And he had died. Swami was talking about death. And he was talking about how even when the body is inert and physical functions have apparently ceased, you're not really dead till the soul accepts that you're dead. In the sense that there's, there's, there's a certain point at which the soul recognizes this body's really not coming back and it's time to go on. Um, this is, and I just will stick this in because it's an important point. Um, even though it might surprise you, Swamiji has suggested that organ donation is not a good idea. Because in order for them to harvest the organs with enough life force in them, in order to, to have them actually be viable when they put them in another body, there has to be some element of consciousness still in your body, or the soul has to be fairly close to the body. And he said, when, you have, when the, the soul steps out of the body, it's not immediately obvious to the soul that you're dead. Because people have this vision in their mind that death means that you're, you're extinct and what really happens is nothing. <laughs> you're just still there. 
So it, it, depending on how conscious you are, but even if you're very conscious, you're just not quite finished with that body. You've had it a really long time. I mean, I was giving away some of my clothes and I found myself a little reluctant to give them up, you know? So how much more is it going to be when we have to take off this thing that we've called ourselves for so long? So the soul hovers for a while, and this is why often, you know, the Irish wakes and things where they leave the body there and you kind of give the soul a little time. And if somebody comes in with a surgeon knife and starts hacking that body to pieces, it can be very confusing for the soul and can actually cause the soul to get slightly trapped. You know, because it was about to go on and then it becomes a little panic-stricken because this thing that's been itself is being hacked to pieces. So it kind of tries to go back, but of course by that point it's way too late to get back in. But the consciousness has been divided. So I try to say that whenever I have a chance. Um, in addition to that, what I was really going to say is this man in India was dying with the diamond ring and a thief saw what he thought was a, a dead body and he came over to get the ring. The man was so attached to the ring that he came back into his body to protect his ring and actually didn't die. <laughs> Just like, you can't have my ring because sooner or later we lose absolutely everything and even though repeatedly he lost everything he had, that was a, that's a reference to reincarnation. But what you don't lose ever is your consciousness. And if you've created a happy consciousness because an expansive consciousness, then that's who you are. Period. Pam, did you have something you wanted to say? Oh, well, Pam had a question on this side before Anna gets it. Is that all right? Hey, Pam, is this appropriate? Or? Yeah. Um, okay. just, just a quick comment. Uh-huh. Something that Swamiji said in the reading um, parenthetically, but it made all the difference in the world to me had to do with willpower mm-hmm. within these two these two lessons. And because I've always, well, not struggled with willpower, but whenever, like, you're doing Kriyas and doing things, you're doing with willpower, and I would catch myself. I, I have to try not to tense up and, okay, we're really, really going to do this with willpower. <laughs> he totally turned me around by saying, don't think of it that way. Think of it as willingness. Willingness, I know exactly. It has transformed my whole idea of that and it's made everything flow smoothly, beautifully, upwardly, expansively. It's just completely changed my my whole point of view around that. And and it was just a little throw-off comment that he made, I believe, in, in the in the writing. And it's like yeah, very good. Willingness. Oh my gosh, it's beautiful. So there's another way to add to that, which I you know it, your thought stands completely by itself beautifully. But here's another way to just kind of embellish it, which is this is an energy universe. And again, these are the points that we're building. And see, we have to completely re-educate our subconscious so that we begin to respond instinctively with these truths and not respond wrongly and have to continually correct ourselves. It's just an energy universe. There's nothing fixed about it. Consciousness becomes thought. Thought becomes adds energy, energy finally manifests. But what we're really dealing with is a completely mutable system here that just responds to magnetism. So what really affects everything is the kind of magnetism we put out. And magnetism is the vibrations that we're putting forth. So a vibration of willingness, I mean, just in common sense terms, it's a very magnetic vibration, isn't it? I mean, just think if somebody's helping you move. And you know they don't really want to be there. In fact, they hate being there, but they have to be there and they're going to help you move and they're going to have the willpower and they're going to do the whole work. And you know, the magnetism is not like real attractive, 
But if somebody's just willing to be there with you, even if they're saying almost exactly the same words, but the energy is, and they're saying, I really didn't want to be here, I wanted to go play softball today, you know, I was really looking to have a day off, but let's get all this stuff done. You know, it's just like the magnetism is there. And it's very important to, to bring these down to just tiny little examples that we can't refute. Because then we realize that, I mean, another way to put it is, it's just useless to drive yourself if the result of that effort is that your magnetism gets really stinky. Because then nothing much is going to happen anyway. And uh, this is what Swamiji said to me many years ago. I mean, he gives everybody different advice. But I used to uh, work in such a way that I, I would move, but I, I would just become frazzled. My magnetism would just go south. And so Swamiji went, said to me, very, for me, this was my advice, you're not going to accomplish, necessarily accomplish more good simply by doing more. And I've always really kept that um, in my awareness that at the point at which my magnetism ceases to be beneficial, I'm, I'm doing... I'm certainly not doing good, and I may well be doing harm. If I must continue, I have to back up to the point where I correct my magnetism. If I can pull away, then I should pull away. Because I'm not going to do more good just by doing more. And it, it just keeps putting the responsibility back where it belongs, which is consciousness is everything. And it, it certainly in terms of prosperity and so on, we don't always have the leisure to stop. So we, just are, we have to train ourselves when it's easier to just master ourselves and keep going. We fail a thousand times. I mean, like, welcome to the human race. This is not about, oh, and now I have it down. My magnetism never stinks, you know. My magnetism stinks a lot. When people call or want something from me, I always say, don't, don't ever worry about imposing on me because when I can't do it, I know it, and I'll tell you. And there'll just be days when I just won't answer the phone. I'll be there, but I won't answer the phone because I have become malevolent, you know. I am no longer a beneficial influence and I, I won't be, I won't, I have to just get back until I get myself together. Does that, does that make sense? And willingness is everything and sometimes you just have some real, have to have real hard talks with yourself. And again, you have to trap yourself by your philosophy. <laughs> you have to trap yourself with the complete understanding that, honey, this is your karma, what do you think? Who's going to rescue you? I mean, I loathe that sometimes. I was just, I I mean, I'm not as emotional as I used to be, but I was weeping on the floor one day. You know, just totally blown out over something. Finally, I just thought to myself, this is stupid. (laughs) I just got up. It's just like, this is stupid. I thought, sooner or later, you're just going to get over it. Just get over it. And I just walked away. Once Swamiji was being very stern with me, and he said, now don't cry, just like that. Man, I just, the whole project became not to cry. You know, my eyes were really big. (laughs) But I didn't cry. And I've hardly ever cried since. It was actually really interesting. It's just like, you know, just get over it. I mean, you can't always treat yourself that way. But it it was very interesting. Because I just began to watch, you know. Above all things, I wanted to cry. I didn't want to hear the truth. I didn't want to think about anything. I just wanted to cry. Like, where? This is stupid. This is my karma. You think I'm being mistreated? How could I be mistreated? 
I've shared with many of you, but not all of you, so forgive me for those of you who've heard this story before. I was caught up in a family situation once that involved the hospital, which is always really horrible. So we were involved with the hospital. And uh, when my parents were alive, of the three children, you know, I'm the, I'm the middle child. Rick and I were comparing notes, you know. I'm the one who keeps it together. So I was there keeping it together for the whole crowd, you know, just doing my, my <laughs> what I call my, I'm very good at other people's crises. So I was in there in everybody else's crises and I was holding it all together, but, you know, it was just taking me down. So I exited from the hospital and went and sat in the car because it was the only place I could get away from everyone else because I couldn't, in my particular belief system, couldn't collapse in front of them, which really would not have been a good idea. So I collapsed on the steering wheel. I'm poor hospital parking lots must have seen some really awful scenes. So I was having one collapsed on the steering wheel, just weeping, and I was so just overcome. And finally, and then in the middle of this, I always, every time I tell this story, all of you know I go like this, because from there, this little voice came in, and it went in this ear, and then it said in my brain, do you think this is happening outside of the will of God? And then it just went out my ear like that, kind of chuckling, you know? And then just, I had to stop crying. Because what could I say? Oh, yeah, the entire cosmos is ruled by the infinite and beneficent love and the karmic law applies everywhere except in these square inches. This, I'm being mistreated and everybody's being mistreated. I was trapped. I was furious, but I was trapped. Because I had practiced when it was a lot easier. I had practiced continuously when I wasn't so freaked out, just taking it back in each time I wanted to rebel. And I mean, I'm talking practicing for decades. You know, when it, was, when it looked easier, practice when it's easier. That's one of the best mantras there is. Just keep practicing whenever you want to rebel against it. Just draw it back in and ask yourself, how, could, how is it possible that cause and effect is a seamless reality except right now? Right? That it, everything is interwoven together except this piece is a goof. Right? So I could no longer rebel, but I was not able to calmly accept... So I just had an extremely honest conversations with the powers that be. And I let God know in no uncertain terms that I thought this was one of the lousiest plans he had ever come up with. And that I don't know really who he thought I was, but I was at the end of my rope. And if I went down, the whole team was going down, and that really seemed like a bad idea. And that if he had some plan for these people, he really just needed to get them going with it because it was not working like this. This is what Master calls a prayer demand. You know, it's like something has to happen here. And it was was very powerful because it was totally from my soul. There was no pretense here. You see, that's that's what God wants from you. He's in your mind anyway. He's in your consciousness anyway. You shine him on. He's not not fooling anyone. You're just blocking the energy. I spent uh, almost a year once with Swamiji just pretending to be really a good devotee when I was, nothing was going right. And finally, he just kept pushing on me and pushing on me. And I kept trying to shine it on. And he kept piling it on. And I was shining it on. And finally, it just went to pieces. And he said to me, you never fooled me. I thought, oh, God, what a waste of time and energy. And from that point on, I had a much uglier attitude. But we got along much better. You know, he says he'd always, he always prefers, as he put it, an honest argument than somebody saying mindlessly yes. Because what can you do with a mindless yes? You have nothing to work with. An honest argument, at least you're both engaged. 
I feel that way about people. I try to say this to people. Really, I don't really care what you tell me or what you think or how you feel about anything, including me. Just do whatever you want, but just tell me the truth. I can't, I don't function well without the truth. But the truth is just like, fine, if that's what it is. Somebody once said to me, they were very upset about me, personally. This was so fun. You know, just basically explained to me that uh, many people like me, but they didn't. <laughs> Some people found my classes interesting, but they really didn't like them much at all. My first sense was this tremendous sense of compassion. But I talk all the time. It must be terrible for you. <laughs> Then they went in about just how, in addition to that, I was a pretty awful leader. Um, and then I said, do you think if I could do this job well, I'd still be in it? <laughs> and after that, we became very good friends. <laughs> you know, it's like what is, is. But we just need to be straight about it. And above all, you must be straight in your heart with God. Well, the end of that story in the hospital is I walked inside and everything changed. Because just, you know, the energy was straight, straight up at that point. And I think it was because of my prayer demand, I'm sure of that. And it was also because the karma was working itself out. We were just all learning what we're supposed to learn, including me. I was supposed to recognize that I have my limits too. You know, I have a very broad boundary. So I have to find out too that I can be pushed over the edge. Everybody has to be pushed over the edge. Now, where were we with any of that? Um... You had made a comment, and then you had another one. So, Anna, what's that? We just, the top little thing sticking. Just top. There, you've got it. Okay. Hello? There, you've got it. Hi. Uh-huh. Back to the donor, organ donor um, question. question. I am an organ donor, and on right. my ID it says, right. it has a little pink dot. So I was thinking, I still want to be able to do that. So if I start the consciousness now to be aware, to not be attached, when I part from my body, will that maybe work? All I know is that Swamiji really does not recommend it. And you can think of a whole lot of reasons why you would want to do it. Mm. And I couldn't argue with them. I do not have such a conscious recollection of going in and out of my body, and he Mm. has spoken against it. So I just took that really, really, really seriously because he knows a lot more about the soul going in and out of the body than I do. So, And I, I, I'm not, you know, going to talk a tremendous amount about that subject, but Daniel Brinkley said something that was very interesting. Daniel Brinkley, who works with hospice, and he's had near-death experiences. He's a fascinating fellow. He, his whole life work has been to get people to have a better relationship to death. And first of the thing he said, which was interesting, he said the medical crisis in America is entirely artificial because it's based on the fact, and other people have confirmed this statistic, I don't know, 70 cents of every $1 is spent in the last six months of life. And then he went on to say, to extend life by an average of 21 days, and those three weeks will be the most hellish weeks you'll ever live through. And he described it as life greed. That if... Our culture was simply accepting of the fact that life ends, and when it ends, it just ends, and we just let it go. Then uh, the whole thing would be different. You know, greed is the source of all the problems we face, but life greed was a very interesting one because doctors think that they create life and death. We have a whole medical industry that's based on the fact that we have power over life and death, which is pretty dumb. And... uh, 
then we have a belief we don't, we've lost contact with it. So the concept of organ donating, donating has a beautiful dimension to it. You think, I don't need this body anymore. But on the other hand, you know, people's lives, it's, a, it's complex. So I, I repeat what he said because n- no one thinks of that. And it just seemed important. He said it with a great deal of energy. Could you give it to Erica? Curious. Um, Swami, I've heard him talk about people who've received um, organs and their their consciousness changes, their likes change, things like that. Does that, I mean, how does that affect the soul also if I think part of a, me is going into someone else and affecting them? It, well, you know, that implies all kinds of things. Those are stories that he read in books, okay. you know, which you can read books about. And there's amazing books, especially about people who receive hearts. People who receive hearts and, and then take on a lot of the characteristics of the person whose, whose heart they've received. So it just tells you all kinds of things. And does that mean a fragment of that soul is still living through your body? Or does that mean that the impressions are in there and that you pick them up? I don't know. Swami has never actually answered. It's just... You, well, you, no, you don't get the chakra. It's not that the heart chakra comes with the heart. Oh, I got a call from a woman once. She'd had a hysterectomy, and she was convinced she no longer had a second chakra anymore. She was really concerned. I said, honey, that would be some heck of a surgeon if he could get your chakra out. <laughs> I don't think you have to worry. <laughs> so no, the heart chakra doesn't come with it, but who knows? They've discovered physiologically that um, a great deal of the same... I'm so ignorant when I say these things. I get, I get the general impression, but the general impression is that a great deal of what's in your brain is also in your heart, physiologically, the same cellular systems, the same methods of reacting, that the heart is a great deal like the brain. So the concept that you actually think with your heart, which is a yogic concept in truth, that, that your first reaction of consciousness comes from the heart, and the brain responds to the heart, that they're finding physiologically that that's so. So are those little synapses kind of oriented toward root beer and motorcycles, you know? And so that you're some little housewife and then suddenly you're drinking root beer and driving motorcycles, which is the funny stories that you hear. I don't know. Compassion hits um, Swami's comment here. So you can take, take it for whatever you want. Okay. Um, any other comments? If, uh, if not, let's take a break, short break, and then we'll come back. We have touched a little on lesson two. I want to do a little bit more on lesson one, and then we'll go in there. Okay. The point that I left out in lesson one that I didn't talk about was this, in a very simple way, Swami says, you know, when something happens to you, you should give it to God, which is a phrase that we've all heard a lot of times, and it's a phrase that comes up over and over again, and I just thought we really should spend a minute talking about that. Also because Swamiji said a few other things in a completely unrelated place, that, that gave me some new perspectives on this, and I just wanted to offer it into you all. Let me just find the spot. And this is all about how not to create more bad karma, so it, it all fits very nicely into... I'm looking in Lesson 2, that's why I don't find what's in Lesson 1. That'll do it every time. Okay. And I even have the lesson marked. I am such an airhead today. Okay. Um, he says... You know, one can offset a negative karma by generating an equal and opposite karma which deflects, absorbs, or nullifies it. 
a deflected karma may rebound on the person who sent it out to you, or if you give it to God, it may serve you yourself as a tapasya, meaning an austerity or penance, giving you great spiritual strength. I mean, that's very attractive, isn't it? Especially since the whole foundation of this course is the law of karma and how to relate to it. When I uh, first arrived at Ananda Village in 1971, June, at the age of 24, or just not quite 24, um, very quickly I was put into working in the kitchen because I was a terrible cook, but I was interested in food and uh, in nutrition and health food. I was a food fanatic. That's why I say I was a terrible cook, because I was a fanatic. Fanatics usually are not good cooks. <laughs> I ceased being a fanatic and became a good cook. But the, this woman, this older woman, um, Shraddha was her name, is her name, she's still living, uh, she was in charge. And she used to talk all... Oh, no, excuse me, I have this. I have the context of this wrong. The first time I heard this was actually the first time I ever visited Ananda, which was in August of uh, 69. No, August of, of 70. And Benai was in the registration room. Uh, and he had... This was just... Things were so chaotic and new at that time. We had no buildings. We just had land, no buildings. And so and it was a hippie era too. So we had people lived in buses and vans and trucks. And on the property that we had bought, there was an old bread van. Anything that had like a roof that didn't leak became a structure because if you have no buildings and very little money, you just use what you have. I mean, and we were all hippies back to the land, so it was really nifty for us. So Benai had this idea that he would make a jewelry business by routing out the manzanita branches and then filling it with resin and little dried flowers. This is like, you know, you, it's a, oh, virtually free. There was almost nothing involved because everything you could pick up off the ground except the resin itself. So he started this little jewelry business and he started in the van. That was his workshop. So he was doing this little crafty thing trying to figure out how to make this stuff and sell it. And then some other person decided that the van was an eyesore and that they were going to serve the whole community by hauling it to the dump and pushing it over the edge. So somebody else just took the van and dumped it over the edge and his entire little enterprise went wherever it went, into the dump. And so I just come in and I'm virtually, this may have literally been my first day there, or certainly when I was very, very new. And Benai, this old friend, is talking to another friend and I'm just eavesdropping and he says things like, well, I really was doing it because I thought Mother wanted me to. and But it seems that Mother had another plan because, you know, she gave me the truck, but then she took the truck away. I don't know why Mother would treat me like this. I'm sitting over there, you know, thinking, this guy's pretty old just to be doing what his mother's telling him to do. <laughs> I'm also thinking, like, what a mother! Like, <laughs> this is, what have I gotten myself into? And then after a while, somehow I figured he was talking about divine mother, which was like, if you were raised Jewish, it wasn't a phrase you heard really often. I was totally bewildered. And it was just, it was worse when it became divine mother. The whole thing was just completely wacko to me. And uh, I remember on another occasion, not long after that, I'm talking to Swamiji and I was intensely analytical and I was burbling on, you know, just giving him all the possible mental iterations of whatever little tiny trauma I was dealing with. And he was patiently listening. And when I finally ceased talking, he said, just give it to God. 
I mean, he might as well have just said, you know, it's just like, I understood the words, but it just went whoosh right over my head. And so I, you know, just kept blinking at him, waiting for some real advice. (laughs) Since he didn't give me any more, we, you know, just had tea. What was there to do at that point? Five, six, seven years later, some dear soul comes to me and is just giving me every mental iteration of the problem that they had. I just leaned over as comfortingly as I can, couldn't said, just give it, I even said, give it to Divine Mother. And then I thought, my God, what's happened to me? <laughs> like, like, where, where, and I, I never, I don't know the point at which it became real, but it was, uh, it's, ama- it's an amazing concept. And it, it really is something so deep and profound, and Divine Mother is one aspect of it, but we can just work with the word God. It's a very, very, important spiritual principle. And what Swamiji is also doing with this course, which which we must understand, this is not an elementary course. In the very first lesson I was saying, this is how to how to um, influence the, the material plane from the spiritual plane. Most people who teach you about prosperity, because they live more on the material plane, they may understand energy. and But they're really, really telling you how to use how to move the material plane from the material plane level. But when Swami's telling you, get in tune with the spiritual plane, and then as he says in these lessons, the subtle always has power over the gross. So he's also telling us, it's like, he's not messing around with the interim solutions, which as I was saying earlier, that'll just dissolve anyway. So this, really tuning in to what this means to give it to God, and then really beginning to practice that, See, then you have a tool that helps you get over it over and over again, which is really what we're trying to do next. All right? So there was another um, aspect to this. I was in my car, and I was listening to Swami talk on one of those treasures against time. Is that what they're called? Treasures along the path. These are these monthly uh, talks that come out from Ananda Village. If you don't get them, I highly encourage you to. They're just amazing. This one woman just does all this archival research and just pulls out from the last 60 years virtually the best talk Swamiji's given. This is a series about uh, yoga itself. I think that's what I was listening to. But he says, desires unfulfilled, um, positive or negative, have nothing to latch on to, so they just keep rotating around you. Right? Isn't that an interesting thought? I'm I'm not sure I'm quoting it exactly. They just keep rotating around the source because if you you have a desire or a fear, maybe maybe you're one of those people who just is afraid of things and you always are agitated about what might happen or else you're longing and longing and longing for something to happen or you're mad about this, just whatever it is, desires, feeling, impulses out toward the world that don't actually um, manifest. They they, They don't have any place to go, so they just hang around you. Like this. Now, because you're the one who originated them and they, they're on a short string. Now that, I've talked about this in earlier classes. This is the vrittis in the spine. This is, that ends up being our chakras and this is what makes our karma is all of our actions and they stay. Now, millions of our desires never actually get manifested in our fears and our thoughts. Isn't that so? That they're all just... But there's also the really big ones that are really unfulfilled desires or or unmanifested anxieties. And they cling to us, 
and they remain in our magnetic field. That's why we often speak, you know, if you, if you worry too much about things, you may draw that very thing to you. Sometimes people take that too far and are afraid to be honest about anything. That's taking it too far. But if you obsessively worry about everything, you create such a vibration of anxiety around you that lo and behold, anxious things find an opening and they get into you. Or if we're always wanting something we don't have, which is what I was talking about at the beginning, rebelling, whatever. But at the same time, we do have lots of unfulfilled desires, don't we? Because there's just so much in this world we can't control. Um, it's just This is a pretty wild place. It's been, it's been striking me all the more so lately. Everybody's got something intense going on. Very dear friend of ours, those of you who may know Mr. Kartikeyan from India, he has, I say now had, he had a lovely wife, 59 years old, a couple of days ago. She just had a heart attack and died. Bingo, like that. She was in perfect health. Her heart stopped. Yeah, we got an email on that. So it's just like everything in their life was lovely. The son just got married. They're all living together, except boom, she was heading for the astral world and nobody seemed to know that. So there's so many elements about life that we can't control, that we have all these unfulfilled, unfulfilled realities within us. But you see, if you give them to God, then they don't have to hover around you anymore because they have something much more real to latch on to. That's the first part of it. Does that make sense to you all? I I want to take that thought a little farther. But what we're doing when we give them to God is we're actually placing them somewhere where there's some power to do something about it, either to fulfill them or not. But we're, we're focusing them into a reality that has more force than we ourselves have. This is why all of these attempts to recreate the world and have non-theistic, non-deistic spirituality and just empower ourselves is just hopeless in the end because we do not have control and many things will just sail them out and, and something else will happen. Other people won't cooperate. A truck will hit your best friend. I mean, something will happen and then all of these realities will just circle around you. But if we take whatever we find in our hearts and we give it back to the source or we give it back to our mother or we give it back to the man in charge, however you want to say that, my father, who, who, who could be quite clever sometimes, in, our, uh, in the community where he lived in Claremont, California, there was a, a little, uh, it was called Pilgrim's Place and it was a retirement community for missionaries. It was a very interesting little place. Claremont is a college town, so it was kind of an interesting town. A bunch of little cottages in this little, you know, neighborhood, darling place, actually. And once a year, they had the Pilgrim's Festival. And all the missionaries would bring all their stuff out, and they'd, you know, make these displays on their front lawns. And, you know, many of them had been to very interesting places and very interesting stories. And my father, being the kind of man he was, he loved to go there. And he would go every year and he would chat with everyone and look at all their stuff and they would sell little things. It was very sweet. And one year, even though Southern California is quite dry and desert-like, it was uncharacteristically wet and it was actually raining on that day. And so they were all out there still, but they were in little rain slickers with plastic things over their displays and so on. And my dad, being a little cheeky, goes up to the one of the missionaries and he said, look... After all you've given to God, don't you think he could give you sunny weather on this one day? (laughs) And this missionary, without missing a beat, he said, well, you know, 
He said, whether it's a decision made by management, I've spent my career in sales. <laughs> but I, I just, that answer has been so wonderful to me, you know, because we're really not in management, you know, or at least at the very best, we're middle, middle level managers. You know, we are not the CEO of this particular company. Our, our lives are guided. Now we can say that they're guided by our own superconsciousness, by our own soul wisdom, and all of that is true, but something is empowering that soul wisdom, and that something can be personified because it is personified. That's how you experience it. We don't experience it as this sort of impersonal, who cares kind of energy. When we actually attune ourselves inwardly to the source of our own nature, it's so loving. It's so concerned. It's so comforting. In the Bible, that's even what Jesus called it. After I am gone, I will send you the comforter. And he was speaking of the own vibration. He said he would send them the blissful inner experience of the divine, but he called it the comforter. Isn't that just a magnificent use of language? And if we think about it, isn't that what we want? I mean, however we, we characterize our spiritual search, what we're really looking for, and this is where the phrase divine mother comes from, you know, we want a mother. We want what a mother represents. With what a mother represents is that embrace, that stroking of the head, that reassurance that there's a safe haven somewhere and that we really aren't such a screw-up as we thought we were, were we? Because look, my mother loves me, right? And also that, you know, after you go back into that energy, then all of a sudden you're renewed and you can go forward. I mean, very, a few people in the world have actual physical mothers who are wise and selfless and loving enough to really provide that. Most of us don't, you know, because how many people are that wise? And we just, you know, you can get a good mother, you can get even a wonderful mother, but the divine mother, you see, is the epitome of all of this. Now, in the same way that a child going to the mother or to the father you know, there's a, there's a limit to how much a child can be responsible for because a child's consciousness has limits, even if it's a great child. There was a little girl at Ananda Village many years ago. Her name was Cece. Ananda Village started out as a 72 acres up, which is now the seclusion retreat, which is a very isolated piece. And then we bought this farm on the 4th of July in 1969. And we bought the farm because we realized we couldn't run a meditation retreat as long as Cece lived on that 72 acres. (laughs) She was about four or five, but, you know, she just simply was too big for those acres and she could be heard. She totally disrupted the meditation retreat single-handedly, right? Jyotish heard her once. She was coming in to visit him and she was quite small and there was, the houses were, you know, only half built and she had a big step to get up and she was trying to climb on the porch and she was having trouble and he heard her say, she backed up and she went like this, this will require my full blast. She said like that. (laughs) Then she got up and went into the house to see him. And all that is perfectly valid, but still there are limits, aren't there? And, And when we perceive ourselves as children of the divine, you know how everywhere people use that analogy, don't they? They're not talking about 
actual realities, but they're not talking about fantasies either. They're talking about the way it feels to us and the way that our consciousness can expand into the next level, the appropriate next level. And then once we are comfortable in that level, then we can go on beyond it. You see, just to imagine God in this impersonal way or God is not existing or I am God and I am the infinite, you know, a God is in everyone, God is in me, everything I, you know, all that stuff. There's no actual, like, it's really hard to progress because it doesn't um, connect viscerally with what we're really experiencing. But the image of the mother or the father or in whatever, the guru, whatever you want to think about it, takes us upward, especially as I was saying, when we think of ourselves as children of the infinite. How many times in the festival of light, oh, children of God, forsake, you know, your suffering. We, we call ourselves children of God, and uh, the whole oratorio begins with that song, children of God, your time of trial is ended. We're always saying that, because if we can conceive of ourselves very deeply as children of God, it does many things for us. One, it says, this is my true nature. You know, I, I mean, I'm looking around here. I call myself Jewish because I'm ch- a child of Jewish parents. You know, uh, Leo has his nationality. Anna Maria has hers. Everyone, you know, I am the children of these people and that makes me who I am, right? But if we were children of God, that also makes us, you see, an expression of the infinite. So we really want to constantly reinvent ourselves in that way. Now, um, some of you remember this, Brother Turiananda, who was a lovely disciple of Master, he's passed into the astral world now. Um, at one point, when Ronald Reagan was president, his daughter, as you may not know this as vividly as we all watch this, his daughter was married to a yoga teacher, and they lived in Santa Monica. That was like so exciting to us, you know, at that time. And uh, she went once to the SRF temple, apparently. And when she was there, her name was Maureen, I think that was the daughter. It doesn't matter which Reagan it was. But anyway, she introduced herself to Brother Turiananda and she said, I'm so-and-so and my father is President of the United States. And he said, my father is Lord of the Universe. <laughs> Just without missing a beat. Isn't that perfect? Okay. Now, if we really are children of the infinite, and we really are united with this, then we're not alone and we don't have to do it all ourselves. We should behave like children. We should be good children. And you know, if, if the child has a big problem that the parents can help solve, but the child is too proud or ashamed or afraid to really bring that problem to the parents, things get really complicated, don't they? And maybe the father could really help you I mean, how many parents have just torn their hair out because they say to their daughter, why, or their son, why didn't you tell me? I was afraid you would do so and so. I would never have done that to you. I didn't know you could help. I thought I should solve it myself. You know, make it like it really is because this is just a relationship like any other. A little more subtle, but just like any other. But if we think of ourselves, and this is what Jesus tried so hard to tell the, uh, the Jews when he came, because they had this concept of God as this fierce judge, and, and it served the purpose of the priest to emphasize that. Because the priests then were the ones who could intercede with that judge, and the poor people were so frightened that they had to do what the priest said, or else the judge would smite them. It was a pretty bad scene. So Jesus came into all of that and said, God is your father. 
You ask your father for a loaf of bread, it says in the Bible, will he give you a stone? Of course not. You know, would your father cast you into, the, into hell, fire forever? Of course not. But we have to really integrate that. And then whatever problem we have, if we can't solve it, or even if we can solve it, but that's another thing that's keeping the company of God. But if, it, if it's just rotating around and sticking to us, we have to put it in the hands of someone who might be able to do something about it. Divine Mother, you know, I'm really sick and I'm really scared. You know, I'm going to have to face this illness and I don't know how to do it. I need something I don't have and I don't know how I'm going to get it. I'm desperately lonely and I can't seem to attract the right person to me. You know, I have to make this decision. I don't know what the right decision is. I mean, a hundred thousand things. If you had a parent who could help you, whom you really trusted, wouldn't you call on him or her? So see, that's what it is that we're trying to develop inside ourselves. Because it says in one of these lessons, faith is the experience of energy that is actually there. But you'll never know that it's there. You'll never know whether your parents can be trusted with this information unless you ask them. You never know what wisdom your parents may have unless you ask them. And, and I'm meaning your divine parents in this sense. And so what you're giving it to is you're giving it to that divine source that is taking care of you. And then once you give it, you have to leave it there. You can't, you can't just give it and then say, well, gee, you know, maybe it's not really working in uh, when we do the class on Whispers from Eternity, which we're going to do in December at Christmas time, or you have that book, you don't have to wait till I give a class on it. But there's um, rules for how to pray in the front of that book. And one of them is, you know, you, well, the, the cycle is you get clear about a righteous, whatever it is, you meditate and get, make contact with God, you offer the prayer with everything that you have, and then you leave it there. You trust that it's been heard and that it will be satisfied in its own time. And then that's how you get over it, right? Because if you've really done, even if you've done a lousy job of it, I mean, sometimes you have to pray, oh Lord, I want to want to give this to you, but I'm not really, I don't really want to, but I want to want to, you know? (laughs) You're not fooling him anyway. You know, you might just say, I'm the lousiest one you've got, but I'm all you've got. And I'm doing my level best to do this and, and make that relationship. Then it, has, it latches on to something and it doesn't just circle around you and be your own karma forever. You're in, God is taking care of you. And he'll either help you or he won't. You know, because sometimes it's not good for you. Sometimes what you're asking for is no good. Daddy, daddy, buy this for me, buy this for me. Okay, I'll think about it. Daddy, did you forget? No, honey, I didn't forget. (laughs) I just am not going to buy it for you because it's really not a good idea just because you think it is. Or you'll grow more if you don't have it. Practice that. You know, really contemplate that this week. You know, just practice trying whatever it is. That's what we do every week in the purification. You know, we put it on the altar and we burn it up. We give it to God and it is in his hands now. Why would I worry about it anymore? You know, the one in charge has it. All right. Any thoughts or questions about any of that? Yes, Ken?
I something came to my mind. You were talking about problems and how to share them with God. And years ago, I right now I can't remember the the book I got it from, but it's just like this little mantra I keep in my head that works almost every time when I back myself into a corner someplace with a problem that I just can't can't handle. There is no problem that is not divinely outmatched. Divinely outmatched. <laughs> Very good. There's no problem that's not divinely outmatched. Lahiri said something like. Um, I can't quote it exactly, it's in autobiography, but, you know, man's capacity to get into trouble is enormous, but the infinite succor and wisdom is greater still. You know, these are little things we just have to say over and over because every time we doubt, we pull up the plant and we sort of mess up the roots and then we just have to start over again. But, I mean, I don't know how from when I heard Benai talk about the Divine Mother and Swami told me to give it to God... I don't really know how I got to the point where I was actually uttering the same words myself. But I just, I know that somehow in all those years I just kept trying and kept trying and kept trying until all of a sudden, spontaneously, it was the obvious solution. And uh, that's, that's how change really happens for us. All right, great souls. We are going to do more about lesson two because now I am actually and fully finished with lesson one. <laughs> So we, we'll do more. I touched on lesson two. I can't say that I didn't, but we'll do lesson two for next week. Um, two weeks, next class. Um, don't, uh, do spend a little time looking through the workbook ideas and the action items in the back of lesson one. And, you know, I, I you know, take, take as much as you can and work with it. You know, I can't do everything for you all, or we really would be on lesson one forever. Okay, that's my whole story. Thank you all. See you, see you in two weeks.